high toxicity, very mobile, and uh, lasting virtually forever um, make them a bad combination. And they found links to numerous health effects, including cancer of the kidneys and a series of other health effects. And the concern is, of course, that now that this stuff is being found in the environment all over the United States and all over the world, a lot of people are being exposed to it. So school uniforms, for example, is, is that something that's an issue still for, for people generally? It very well can be an issue. And fairy tales of eternal economic growth. There are alternatives. Um, believe it or not, when we were growing up, we didn't necessarily have <laughs> these materials um, sprayed onto our clothing. Um, there really is no need for them, frankly. Is there anything that we could do to avoid a surge in the future? Is there anything we could do now? Hello and welcome to the More Teacher Talk podcast. Today I'll be speaking to Eric D. Olson. Eric is the Senior Strategic Director for Health and Food, Healthy People and Thriving Communities. He has more than 30 years of experience working at the intersection of public policy and consumer advocacy. Eric currently directs the NRDC's advocacy initiatives on health, food and agriculture, including campaigns on drinking water protection, toxins in products and the environment, pesticides, food additives, antibiotics and efforts related to agriculture and climate change. His work has led to the first major overhaul of the US Food and Drug Administration's food safety laws in more than 70 years, as well as revamped laws protecting the nation's drinking water and food supply from pesticides. Welcome, Eric. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell, tell them a little bit about your role? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. My name is Eric Olson, and I oversee the strategy on health and food at the Natural Resources Defense Council. I'm based in Washington, D.C. I've worked in this field of health and uh, public health and environmental policy for about 35 years. So I'm focused primarily as a nonprofit advocate on trying to improve public health across the United States. And we do have some international work as well. And how did you become interested in this field of work? Well, actually, I was got interested when I was a child. I actually grew up in Chicago, Illinois, um, a big city um, right on Lake Michigan. And I remember from uh, back in the days when I was a young man, um, the uh, air pollution being in Chicago and actually dust from coal burning settling on our apartment um, all over the place, my mother having to clean up every day and wondering whether that was really healthy for us all to be breathing and seeing um, a massive fish kill on Lake Michigan shore that was from the environment being out of balance. So that got me interested and I've really been interested in the connections between our environment and public health um, for many, many years. This episode is specifically about uh, PFAS, the, the audience being parents and teachers, and, and some of our listeners may not know much about these. I wondered if you could tell us the story of these from beginning really to, to now. Sure. Well, so PFAS, it's a very long word. Um, it's per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Everybody calls them PFAS. These are chemicals that are man-made. They are 
used in making Teflon pans, for example, and nonstick pans. They're used in um, some firefighting foam that's widely used in some airports. Um, and they're used in many other uses for nonstick surfaces. Um, they've been used for carpets and for couches and so on to make them less susceptible to staining. And they unfortunately have three common um, elements that make them problematic. Um, one is that they are toxic at very, very low concentrations in the parts per trillion levels in our drinking water. They pose health threats. Secondly, they're widely called forever chemicals or forever toxics because they have a bond in them that is virtually impossible for mother nature to break down. So they last for decades, maybe centuries in the environment. And thirdly, they move very quickly through the environment. Um, so once they get into water, for example, into the groundwater, they spread quickly into surface water, into the air, they can spread quickly. So those three effects, high toxicity, very mobile, and uh, lasting virtually forever, um, make them a bad combination. And uh, and in terms of the history then of uh, of where they first came from and 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 some others is it P four P four what's the connection and and you know how how is that related? Yes, so PFAS it's actually a very large family of toxic chemicals. Um, there are, by last accounts, um, almost eight thousand of these, according to the most recent EPA um, data that I saw. So. There are thousands of these chemicals. A couple of them were the early entries, um, PFOA and PFOS, um, or PFO and PFOS. Um, that's just two out of the roughly 8,000 of, the, of these big family of toxic chemicals, forever chemicals. Um, they were widely used to make some of the products I was mentioning before, like Teflon and some of the firefighting foams and some of the Scotchgard and other chemicals that are creating stain resistance in fabrics and are widely used in industry across the board. So they've been around for decades. Um, those two that I mentioned um, have been phased out in the United States and in many other countries. PFOA and PFOS are not being made anymore. But the problem is they're a little bit like shark's teeth. You break off one and there are a bunch of them right behind that are ready to fight you. Um, so eliminating one or two of them really hasn't done very much because we still have thousands of them in reserve. And, uh, and you mentioned uh, about being known as forever chemicals. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Well, so the reason these are so hard to break down in nature is they have what's called a carbon-fluorine bond. This is a bond that doesn't exist, a chemical bond that doesn't exist in nature. And it's virtually impossible for bugs, bacteria, and so on to break it down. It takes a long time for it to break down in the environment or in our bodies. So because of that property, um, they tend to stick around a long time. They can be, once we consume them, they can build up in our bodies and last in our bodies for years across the world, about 99% of the world has PFAS in their bloodstreams or in their body tissues. Um, so we're all carrying this stuff around, most of us from the time we're born. Um, and they don't 
eliminate themselves so that it's not like if you stop consuming them today, you're going to be free of them in a week or a month or a year. Your levels will very gradually go down, which is why we call them forever chemicals. So the impact then of something that doesn't really go away, what's the impact on the environment and, uh, and, why, and why is it really a problem for us? Well, just because they are they don't go away doesn't necessarily mean they're a problem. The reason they're a problem is because they're so toxic at very low doses. So our concern is that a lot of studies have now been done. Um, one of the biggest ones was done in the United States. It's called the C8 study. Um, and C8 stands for the number of carbons in, in the PFOA and PFOS. And that study looked at over 60,000 people in the state of West Virginia here in the U.S. And these folks had all been exposed to elevated levels of these chemicals in their drinking water. And they found links to numerous health effects, including cancer of the testicles, cancer of the kidneys, and a series of other health effects. And the concern is, of course, that now that this stuff is being found in the environment all over the United States and all over the world, a lot of people are being exposed to it through their drinking water, through consumer products, through their food, um, through numerous other avenues. And uh, the concern is some of these health effects um, ranging from cancer to some impacts on the kidneys, impacts on the thyroid and other effects that can occur in pregnant women, for example. So, so what would be the most common ways for, for these to get into the environment? Well, they get into the environment in a variety of ways. Um, one of the most widespread is they have been used for a long time in these sprays that are used to suppress chemical fires or uh, petroleum fires. So they have been in widespread use in airports, for example, and in defense um, installations. So all these big... Um, Air Force installations and so on. And it's not really so much that they're used on the fires that's the big problem. The problem is that they have been very widely used in training exercises. Oh, and they're just sprayed all over the place and left to sink into the groundwater or wash off into surface water. And so we've seen this in the US just last week. Our Defense Department announced that um, over 650 sites across the United States may be contaminated um, with these chemicals, um, Defense Department sites. So a lot of that is from the use uh, to suppress fires or to do practice. And now um, Heathrow and a lot of other airports across the world have switched out of these PFAS firefighting foams. Unfortunately, here in the United States, we've been very slow in replacing those PFAS. And in fact, some federal rules have required them for a long time. So we're just now starting to phase them out, we hope, from those uses. The other big uses of them include a lot of industrial uses for um, reducing stains of textiles. So they've been widely used in things like clothing and footwear and carpeting and rugs, innumerable other types of uses. So that gets into you when you use that product or the factories themselves that are using that often will discharge it into the air or into the water 
And also, the, of course, the chemical companies that are making it will often discharge it into the air or the water. Okay, so we've got a combination of the, the production and the manufacturer. Uh, the production and manufacture of the chemicals themselves, there was the products uh, and uh, things like firefighting and the training. Okay. Um, so so some of these things you think uh, perhaps are alternatives. And, and there's, there's a few which, as a, as a father, uh, as a teacher, or as certainly as a parent, that I'm particularly concerned about or thinking, you know, is, is this something I should be trying to find out more about? Um, one you mentioned about uh, protecting clothing, so school uniforms, for example. Is, is that something that's an issue still for, for people generally? It very well can be an issue. So if a uh, piece of clothing is stain-resistant, labeled as stain-resistant or as water-resistant or waterproof, there's a very good chance it is treated with PFAS. And that would be something you pretty much would have to ask the manufacturer of the clothing whether they have treated it with PFAS or not. Um, but if it's labeled as stain resistant or as water resistant or waterproof, um, pretty good chance that it's in there. That's that's really interesting because I've got to say that the number of children I, I you know I can picture in my mind who are chewing their stain resistant clothing you know like gnawing it away um, you know I'm just wondering if, if that, that's you know, if that's something I should be concerned about and, and look into. I, I was going to say yes, I, I would be concerned. I you know I don't want to panic people. Um, the you know the amount that a child is likely to get um, from just wearing that clothing is likely to be. Uh, unless the clothing has started to degrade, um, that's when you start to worry. So it's not like they're going to be poisoned tomorrow. Um, that the way that this stuff is used is it's usually put into the chemicals will start binding to each other. So it's um, the theory at least is that when it's fairly new and it's not degraded, um, there's going to be fairly low exposure. The problem is when when it gets to be older and it starts falling apart, um, whether that starts to release some of the chemicals. And of course, the manufacturing of those clothes um, and the application of that chemical can contaminate the community. And I suppose the thing with that is that there seems to be alternatives. There are alternatives. Um, believe it or not, when we were growing up, we didn't necessarily have <laughs> these materials um, sprayed onto our clothing. Um, there really is no need for them, frankly. Um, but, um, I guess, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a convenience and unfortunately it started to be widely used before we've, I think before the public fully understood the extent of the problem. Okay. How about, uh, toys then? Cause toys seems like an obvious thing that you'd want to be quite indestructible and useful. Um, um, is that something that should be a concern? Again, if, if it, the toy includes um, some fabric that has been treated to make it stain resistant or waterproof. It very well may have PFAS on it. Um, I haven't heard of things like wooden or plastic toys being treated with um, PFAS. But you know, to be honest, a lot of a lot of these products have never been tested. Um, it, it really seems unlikely the main uses of, of PFAS in consumer products are for stain or water resistance or to make um, surfaces not stick together. 
Um, so it's relatively unlikely unless it's a treated fabric. Okay. Reading around the topic, um, AstroTurf and rubber crumb that seem to, uh, you know, I seem to come across that a few times. Again, is that is that something that the research is, you know, giving us more information about now? Yeah, well, we've known for a while that some of the crumb rubber um, and AstroTurf fields, um, it's not necessarily just PFAS, but there are a variety of chemicals that are sometimes released, especially in hot weather um, from crumb rubber, for example. So it's, uh, you know, PFAS may be an issue, but I think there's some other chemicals that have been a concern. So I know some here in the U.S., some school districts have decided to move away from some of the crumb rubber because of um, the toxic chemicals that can be released when it gets heated up in very hot weather. I've got a small section of things I was really keen to find out more about. What about food packaging? Yeah, well, that's a pretty significant issue here. So if you get your uh, takeaway um, that, you know, either your Chinese food or perhaps your pizza box, et cetera, um, if it's treated to not allow grease to penetrate, it's very likely to have PFAS in it. So a lot of cardboard um, that doesn't allow, that's uh, grease resistant or grease proof, that's going to be sprayed with PFAS or have PFAS in it. So yes, food packaging definitely has it. We actually succeeded in getting the um, U.S. Food and Drug Administration to ban certain of the long chain PFAS. These are the like the C8s and the long chain PFAS from food mm -hmm. packaging here. But unfortunately, there's still thousands of other PFAS that still can be used. So there are a couple states in the U.S. that are now moving towards a ban on PFAS and food packaging. And a lot of that's because we like to be able to compost our food packaging. And um, you cannot compost it if there's a lot of PFAS in it because then you're going to be growing plants, presumably, or food um, in PFAS-contaminated compost. So okay. at least in the U.S., we're phasing out um, from all the compostable food packaging um, PFAS, but that's not been achieved yet. I'm fascinated to find out what the current UK situation is, certainly post-Brexit, and if there's been any change or, you know, I, I just don't know. So I, I, I need to, I, I'm the pupil in this this edition of the podcast, for sure. The other thing that I was wanting to explore was about the production and consumption of, of toxic chemicals, which, as far as I understood, it has been relatively consistent from 2004 to present day. Uh, and obviously, correct me if any of this is wrong. Um, and the only time that uh, there was a significant reduction was during the economic economic crash in 2008 and then the following two years after that, when there was a surge after that, which took levels to then back to round about where they were. Does that sound right? Does that sound like a, a, a fair statement? Uh, that sounds roughly right. I can't say that I've taken a careful look year by year at the production, but we do know that although the number of pounds of some of the chemicals may be somewhat steady, um, what the problem is is that we now understand that some of these chemicals, like PFAS, even at low poundage, can present a really significant health risk because they're way more toxic even at low doses than we used to think. So PFAS being a great example of that. If the current pandemic, which obviously is the main thing on everyone's minds right now, and, and, and this is, is, you know, there isn't anything more serious. If I uh, dare to, to 
just peer around the corner and assume there'd be some kind of reduction in the production and consumption at this stage. Is there anything that we could do to avoid a surge in the future? Is there anything we could do now? Well, I wish I could say it would be easy for us to turn off the spigot for the more toxic chemicals that um, we have been producing for years. Um, I think that would require a pretty significant policy changes and a change of heart in the chemical industry, which is not easy to come by. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> in the U.S., we just had the Federal Environmental Protection Agency here under the current administration announced that they were suspending most enforcement of their monitoring and reporting requirements during the COVID epidemic. Um, and that we are concerned is going to mean that we could see a surge in pollution from some of the facilities that are not going to feel that they have to continue tracking their okay. pollution. So I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that maybe this has taught us some lessons about prevention and investment and public health um, before we get caught with big problems, but I haven't seen evidence of that yet. If you were um, if you were going to appeal then or, or or give some urgent actions that people could take, um, you know, beyond that, what things would you recommend? Well, I think the main thing is we can't really shop our way out of this problem. Um, you can certainly reduce your exposure by not buying, for example, pans that are treated with nonstick chemicals and instead using cast iron and not purchasing um, clothing that is waterproofed using PFAS. But really, and there are lists of those, aren't there? Sorry to interrupt. Sure. There, are, there are some lists of those uh, you know, pans that are, don't, don't use PFAS. And yes, so on. there are. There are some lists out there. Just be aware that some companies advertise that they're PFOA free. Um, but they use some of the other 7,998 PFAS. Um, so you want PFAS-free, PFAS-free. But yes, there are some lists out there that people can use um, okay. to identify products. The thing that really is going to solve this problem is policy change. And that means really our governments phasing out the most dangerous uses, including these uses um, in airports and firefighting foam. There are other safe alternatives and phasing out these other dangerous uses that are causing widespread exposure. Okay. The origin of this podcast was the thought that um, the sustainable development goals, uh, by 2030, there's that hope that we can achieve all of them. And goal 12 about responsible production and consumption. Uh, it was fascinating to me to learn that there were so few educators in the UK who had used that as a focus for their um, collaborative work or international project work or anything like that. So if this was a point where we could look at trying to achieve goal 12, what key messages could you give to teachers and parents? Well, I think there really is a lot of hope out there um, because a lot of younger people are identifying what we call green chemistry as a new advanced way to be thinking about how to protect our environment, how to protect our health. So some chemistry departments across the United States and across the world are moving in the direction of green chemistry that basically means before you start using a chemical, you try to make sure that it's not toxic. You try to make sure it's, it's not 
dangerous to the environment or to public health. And that is a new movement. And I would encourage teachers to think about how to integrate some green chemistry principles into addressing basic everyday problems. Is there a way that we could avoid using toxic chemicals on our school uniforms or in our food packaging? What's an alternative to doing that? There are some ways that we used to avoid people being um, exposed to these toxic chemicals. How can we do that in the future? Those are real world problems. And I think young, innovative minds can solve these problems without turning to toxic chemicals. Absolutely. Eric, it's been such an honor to speak to you today. And I know that you're really busy. So please know that I do appreciate it. And teachers and parents, when they hear the things that you have to share, I'm sure that they'll appreciate it too. Very good. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. That was Eric D. Olson from the NRDC. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit the website at www.nrdc.org. If you'd like to learn more about PFAS, do visit the FIDRA website at www.pfasfree.org.uk. You can explore the Sustainable Development Goals at www.un.org. I'll share some links to the green chemistry information for educators, some biomimicry resources as well. I hope you enjoyed listening. We'd really appreciate your feedback and you can get in touch with us through Twitter at moreteachertalk or visit our website www.moreteachertalk.com. This episode was recorded at the time of the global coronavirus pandemic and is dedicated to all the teachers, support staff, key workers and NHS staff who are doing amazing work for us all. Thank you for listening.